The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I'm your host, also the Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary. In March of this year, we hosted our 2021 Spring Theology Conference focusing on the theme of the Trinity. The title of the conference was, Who is God? The Trinity, the Gospel, and the Christian Life. In this special edition of Confessing Our Hope, we are continuing our series through select addresses from the conference, hearing today from recent graduate Ethan Bulliard. Mr. Bulliard is the organizing pastor of Heritage Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Wilmington, North Carolina, and his address is entitled Circle of Glory, Trinity, and the Christian Life. In this lecture, Mr. Bulliard draws from John 17 and other texts to demonstrate the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity for our daily lives. May God bless you as you tune into this special edition of Confessing Our Hope. I do express thanks to the seminary in having the opportunity to speak this conference Um, The seminary has a particular place of affection in my heart uh, for one reason, um, that I first captured a vision for the glory of a triune God, I think sitting under Dr. McGraw in one of his systematics classes. And so if everything goes wrong, we could, in fact, blame the teacher who instructed the student. Um, But beyond that, another just personal note of why this seminary is special, not just to me, but to our church, Heritage in Wilmington, is that for almost two years before I was called to be a church planner there, uh, Dr. Piper would come every month and make that trek to fill the pulpit. And so on multiple levels, we're thankful for the seminary, thankful for this conference, and I'm thankful to be speaking here uh, this morning. As we uh, turn to the Word of God, I would ask you to stand in honor of the reading of Scripture. And before we read, we'll briefly ask the Lord to open our eyes to behold uh, wondrous things out of His law. Let us pray together. Our Father, which art in heaven, we come with fear and trepidation to take upon our lips the plea of your servant Moses, praying, show us your glory, rend the heavens, and come down. O Lord, give to me your servant, the tongue of the learned, that I might be able to speak a word in season to him who is weary. And I pray for myself and for this assembly that you would give us the ear of the learned, that you would open our ears morning by morning to listen intently to your revelation. We pray, O Lord, that you would show us your glory, that we might reflect back to you the radiance of your worth through Jesus Christ and by your spirit, praying this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Remain standing for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading um, two brief sections from Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. 
We'll read first John 17, verses 1 to 5, and then we'll go toward the end of that prayer to verses 20 to 24. Listen intently to the words of the living God. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Going down to verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. I'll begin by putting my cards on the table. This is not an expository sermon per se, uh, but rather a, a talk, um, an address, a message, which nevertheless I hope and intend to be experiential. And although all of the messages have been practical, you could be tempted to think that this particular message on the Christian life would be narrowly practical. We're applying the doctrine of the Trinity we've heard all week to the nitty-gritties of practical Christian living. As I say that, this business of attempting to make the Trinity practical is dangerous business. We're running with scissors, we're playing with matches, there be dragons. And there's a couple dangers in particular. Uh, the first danger is pragmatism. Uh, we could be tempted to use the doctrine of the Trinity as if it were a mere tool. And if we do that, then God really becomes a means to some other practical end. And in fact, we choke out the doxology and we forget that God is worth considering for his own sake. That there is nothing more intrinsically practical than knowing who God is. 
There's a second danger, and that is projection. Projection is where we're tempted in our endeavor to make the Trinity practical to project back onto God human patterns of thought and behavior. We have some some agenda that we want to prove, and the Trinity becomes a canvas that we simply project our own thoughts back onto God. This is a particular danger of what's called social Trinitarianism. And if you don't know what that is, often what that looks like is a scholar will drop the word perichoresis and basically go crazy, developing the Trinity as some sort of social construct. And if we do that, then we diminish the transcendence of God. We erase the creator-creature distinction. It's dangerous business. And it's not just that, it's difficult business. Because if you think about it, Who God is has practical implications for everything, so we could, in all seriousness, talk about anything. So just indulge me for a moment as I tell you what this talk is not about, but what might have been. Uh, We could have talked about prayer, using Ephesians 2.18 to pray to the Father through the mediation of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We could have talked about piety, using 2 Corinthians 13.14 to enjoy by way of eminence, communion with the Father in love and the Son in grace and the Spirit in comfort. Uh, We could have talked about identity, and that surely would have been a relevant topic where race, gender, class, sexual orientation is all seen through the lens of critical theory in our days, and we are reminded that God made us in his image male and female, and that for a Christian, whatever tribal loyalties and identities you might have, ultimately your chief identity is that you belong to the triune God. We could have talked about work, everyday labor and vocation in the world, John 20, 21 to 22, to work as those who have been sent by the Father through his word, by his spirit. In fact, uh, Fred Sanders, who's been mentioned several times, he mentions all kinds of possibilities. Personal evangelism, conversational prayer, devotional Bible study, authoritative preaching, world missions, assurance of salvation, all presuppose that life in the gospel is life in communion with the Trinity. It's said before, but the gospel is Trinitarian. The Trinity is the gospel. But it's difficult because we could talk about almost anything. As I struggled with that reality, I was tempted to take the easy way out. Does anyone know what the easy way out is? That's where you drop a really long footnote to volume two of John Owen's collected works, Communion with God, perhaps with secondary references to the Holy Spirit and the glory of Christ, maybe even to Dr. McGraw himself, and you basically read that footnote You close in prayer and everybody goes home. And that sounded doable, but it also felt like cheating. And so I put that one back on the shelf and went back to the drawing board. Anyway, if that's what might have been, what will this talk be? Trinity in the Christian life. What is the essence of the Christian life? If you could distill... Christian living down to, let's say, one word, what would that word be? Well, I would suggest that one good way of answering 
that question is the word glory. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That the pulse beat of the Christian life is the glory of God. It's charged with the grandeur of God. Or to paraphrase Peter von Maastricht, it is living to God through Christ by the Spirit, living for his glory. So by God's grace, this talk will explore the dynamic between the Christian life and the glory of the triune God. But together, we will embark on a quest for glory. And we'll do that through three movements that build on each other. Uh, First, we'll consider the distortion of glory. Uh, Second, the pattern of glory. And third, the reflection of glory. In other words, we'll see how sin has corrupted everything, including our desire for glory, how God provides the perfect model and pattern of glory, and then how we might, as image bearers, as creatures, reflect that glory back to the Lord. Let's begin with the distortion of glory. Begin with a problem. Begin with bad news. Pastor Aaron Ventura, in a wonderful little exhortation, uh, speaks about glory hunger. That each of you, like a rushing river, has a heart that seeks and desires glory. And as Pastor Ventura points out, the problem is that sin has polluted that torrent of water. In our sin, we fall short of the glory of God. In our idolatry, we exchange the glory of the Lord into an idol. We exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image made like corruptible man. And thus we are surrounded in our culture with counterfeits, pastiche, distortions of glory. Just think about it for a moment. How does the world view glory? Well, the world views glory as power, status, fitness, looks, money. It's worldly resources and then worldly recognition. You have resources and everybody knows it. And in the world, and even by nature, how do we pursue that glory? Well, in the world, we think about glory as a zero-sum game. Uh, Glory is a finite resource, which means that if you have glory, that's glory that I don't have. And if I have glory, that's glory that you don't have. And as a result, we, we clutch, we grasp, we grab, we strain for glory. Uh, One of my good friends, uh, Brian Bassett, perhaps you know him, likes to call this glory grabbing. And is that not what our first parents did in the garden? When they reached out and grabbed that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they grabbed for glory, not caring about God's timetable or God's way. They strained for it. So you get while the getting's good. You seek to suck up as much glory as you can. Maybe you use two straws, and once you have it, you hoard it. You squander it. 
You hold on to it at all costs because whoever dies with the most glory wins. Now the problem is glory is hard to come by. And maybe that's even more true or more painful to us today. Uh, Jordan Peterson, the philosopher, has observed that in earlier decades, uh, you could basically be the best at something in your small little hometown. And you could have a certain time in the sun, a certain day as king. But with the internet, you can literally compare yourself and your skills to millions and billions of other people. And you start to realize that we're all pretty average. And we're basically a bunch of dim light bulbs of moderate wattage. And that means that we're not special anymore. Just go on YouTube or TikTok and look at somebody else and what they're doing. And as a result, we, we look for shortcuts to glory. We try to short-circuit the path to glory. Life hacks. We day trade with our life savings. We speculate on the future because we're desperate to get glory. Now, what happens when you do this, when you live this way? How does it work itself out? Well, a number of philosophers, including Rene Girard, have pointed out that there's a certain pattern to this. Uh, you see other people desiring glorious things, and you see them possessing those things, and it leads to conflict because you want what they have. And this conflict ratchets up till eventually it gets violent. Maybe it looks like gossip or shame or blame, but you need to make the other person pay because you want what they have. Resentment gives way to envy and a desire for vengeance. And we don't need French philosophers like Gerard to tell us this. James 4 says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure? That war in your members, you lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. It's as simple as two toddlers playing on the floor and everything's fine until one takes hold of a toy and the other sees the other child desiring that object, possessing that object, and all of a sudden, that's mine. And there's war. We see this in advertising, where I want to be like Mike, so much so that I'm willing to kill somebody on the streets to get their Air Jordans. We see this on social media. It's all a great glory game to craft just the right Facebook status, to post just the right selfie on Instagram, to chart the number of friends, because that's not just any metric, it's a measure of glory. And when you post that Instagram photo that's picture perfect of that one room in your house that actually is picture perfect and the rest of the rooms look like trash, but you put it up there for everybody to see, and all of a sudden there's a dopamine high because each like feels like a spark of glory. On the one hand, what this leads to is simply pride and narcissism, where it's all about you. But on the other hand, it can't just be about you because all of a sudden other people are a liability to your glory. You feel threatened by other people. You see someone with superior gifts and skills, well, all of a sudden they might take the glory that really you feel entitled to. There's a fear of missing out on glory. 
Well, this mad grab for glory cannot go on forever. It has to go somewhere. And how does it end? Well, it doesn't end, as T.S. Eliot says, with a bang, but with a whimper. We grab for glory. Let me tell you, your reach will always exceed your grasp. Why? When you grab for glory, what is it you really want? You want more. You want more friends, more money, more power, more status, more prestige, more recognition. The problem with earthly glory is that the craving never goes away. It just increases. Um, It opens its mouth wider and wider, so cavernously that it almost threatens to devour you. And we see this with the children of Israel, don't we, in Exodus 16, where they hoard the bread because they're insecure. And so they, they hoard as much as they can, and it rots in their mouths. Let me warn you that if you hold on to glory, if you clench your fists, it will go bad in your hands. That if you glut yourself on glory, it will spoil in your stomach. If you stuff your life with worldly glory, there will be nothing left but mold in the back of the fridge. Like ashes in the mouth, vinegar in the eyes, sawdust on the tongue, vain, worldly, earthly glory is fleeting. What does Jesus say? From him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. This mad grab for glory takes you beyond absolute zero, if possible, to negative numbers, where over this entire pursuit of man to obtain glory on his own terms, in his own way, we could write the inscription, Ichabod, glory gone. But we still have that glory hunger, which is not necessarily wrong. And if we can't get it in the world, where do we look? What alternatives are there? Well, what does the psalmist say? I will lift up mine eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. People of God, the answer is to take your eyes off of the things of the earth and to set your affections upon things in heaven. It's to behold your God. And that leads us, we move from the distortion to the pattern of glory. Our God provides a radically different model of glory, the original pattern. As I say that, you might object that shifting our focus from the world to God doesn't actually solve the problem. You could argue that it perpetuates the problem. Now, what do I mean? Well, sinners pursue glory their own way, on their own timetable. They're selfish, they're self-serving, they're proud, and they're petty. But the problem is... This is subtle. Sometimes we think about God's glory almost the same way. Chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What is the chief end of God? Well, John Piper has rightly said that God's chief end is to glorify himself and to enjoy himself 
forever. In other words, God rightly pursues his own glory. Just let that wording sink in for a moment. There's all sorts of misconceptions that could emerge from that type of wording. If God pursues his own glory, do we at times think about God as if he were selfish or vain, proud, and petty? Do we sometimes think about God's pursuit of his own glory as if it's just a large-scale projection of human arrogance? It's the problem writ large. Well, such a thought, and I say perish the thought, should trip an alarm bell in your brain. It should throw a red flag on the playing field. But it's there when we think about that thought. Uh, Robert Lethem, in his excellent book on the Trinity, says this, when he seeks his glory, uh, we could be led to think that he is pursuing self-interest like a celestial bully. But he is more powerful than we are, and so his pursuit of his own glory uh, wins out come what may. Uh, Another theologian suggests this, we could be tempted to think that he has created us primarily to get glory for himself, like the pagan gods who need to suck up as much glory and praise as they can. Again, a zero-sum game where if he has all the glory, this implies that we have none. If we possess glory, it comes at the expense of his glory. If anyone, anywhere, has an ounce of glory, God has to confiscate it. We think about God this way. We could be tempted to think that he's selfish, vain, proud, and petty. Now, at this point, you might object, well, what would be petty and vain in a creature is not so in the creator. And what would be the worst vice in me is the greatest virtue in him because he's God and we're not. And there are certain scriptures that definitely point us in that direction. You think about Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Isaiah 48, 11, For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned, and I will not give my glory to another? So clearly God does pursue his own glory. But if we conclude from these texts that that makes our God selfish and vain, proud and petty, we have problems, significant problems. A couple problems in particular. One, God is a morally perfect being. God is good. Can a good God be self-serving, self aggrandizing, selfish. Well, God forbid. Almost makes God sound insecure as if he needs something for us to fill up something lacking in his glory. Such thoughts are not worthy of our good God. Uh, Second, God is love. 1 Corinthians 13, love does not envy, love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not seek its own. Well, if God is love, then he does not envy. He does not parade himself, is not puffed up, does not seek his own. Now, how does God's pursuit of his own glory jive with the fact that as a loving God, he does not seek his own? At first blush, as we turn from distorted glory to the pattern of glory, 
It doesn't seem like the problem solved. In fact, you could argue it perpetuates the problem on a much larger, infinite scale. Looks like we've painted ourselves into a corner, and it's times like these that I wonder, is it too late to drop that really long footnote to John Owen and, and close in prayer and go home? Well, we can't do that. We have to keep going. We have to push through. And part of the answer to this at least from our perspective, conundrum, is the doctrine, which has already been mentioned numerous times, the doctrine of simplicity. That God is a most pure spirit without body, parts, or passions. That God is his attributes. That all that is in God is God. Which means that we can never pit God's pursuit of glory against his love and his goodness. That somehow God's pursuit of his own glory is informed and informs all of his attributes. And yet, we can keep pushing the answer further, not just simplicity, but trinity. I believe we need an explicitly trinitarian account of glory, to look at the glory of God through the lens of the trinity. Yes, God pursues his own glory, but let's ask ourselves this question, what does it look like in history? For the triune God to pursue his own glory. And that brings us to John 17. I won't belabor setting the context for John 17. Dr. Master did that masterfully last night. But this is the end of the Upper Room Discourse. It's the eve of Jesus' crosswork. It's his high priestly prayer where he prays to his father. Look at verses 1 to 5. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have called me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. For Jesus, the incarnate God-man, there is a close connection between his giving glory to his Father and his receiving glory from his Father. In fact, one implies the other, that in some manner the Son's glory and the Father's glory, and by implication the Spirit's glory, are bound up together. And that's clear from the grammar of the text. Jesus' petition, glorify your Son. Why? Well, he has a purpose statement, that your Son also may glorify you. But he grounds his request for glory in the glory of his Father. And now, O oh Father, glorify me. Again, he asks for glory. But notice how he weaves his petition closely with that of the Father's glory. Glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Somehow, the Son's request for glory does not contradict or compromise his father's possession of glory. To the contrary, 
his receiving of glory will only redound to the Father's glory. That Christ's vision of glory is not contracting, but expanding. It's not exponential decay, it's it's exponential increase. And to understand something of what's going on in the upper room, it's helpful uh, to retrieve some theology from our fathers in the faith. Let's briefly look at John 17 um, over the shoulder of Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, Gregory was one of the three Cappadocians, and according to some scholars, the most brilliant, the most systematic thinker. This man was influential in the final form of the Nicene Creed, the standard for Orthodox Trinitarian theology. And in his treatise on the Holy Spirit, Gregory comments on these verses in John 17. Here's what he says. You see the revolving circle of the glory moving from like to like. The Son is glorified by the Spirit. The Father is glorified by the Son. Again, the Son has his glory from the Father, and the only begotten thus becomes the glory of the Spirit. For with what shall the Father be glorified, but with the true glory of the Son? With what again shall the Son be glorified, but with the majesty of the Spirit? Gregory's observation, looking at John 17, we could summarize this way, that God pursues his own glory. But what this looks like in time and space and in history is that each member of the Godhead seeks the glory of the others. That there is a mutual giving and receiving of glory. I should briefly stop and address something that we've presupposed all along. What is glory? We talk about the Son asking the Father for glory and the Father glorifying the Son. What is glory? Well, the Hebrew um, word is simply the idea of weight or heaviness. speaks to value or worth, name or fame, honor, devotion. Um, C.S. Lewis's essay, The Weight of Glory, he says, glory suggests to me two ideas. Either glory means fame or it means luminosity. Weight, light. And light imagery, which is pervasive in the Word of God, especially in books like Isaiah, Revelation, Ezekiel, this light imagery suggests something of how glory and love can work together. Michael Reeves says this, The beautiful glory of the triune God is radiating, self-giving, and loving. He says this glory is a shining out light, a pouring out of love. And he has this helpful illustration that for the pagan gods, those gods with like passions as we have on Mount Olympus, those pagan gods who are not gods at all, their glory is like a black hole. It caves in on itself. It constantly needs human affirmation. It sucks out the life. Well, the glory of the triune God is Utterly and completely different from that. It diffuses light and life 
And to paraphrase G.K. Chesterton, God's glory is not centripetal, always caving in on itself, but centrifugal. Its light breaks forth. Its life breaks out. As one theologian puts it, within the communion of God, the Father is not seeking glory from the Son. He is glorifying the Son. The Son is not seeking glory for himself, but he is seeking the glory of his Father. And the Spirit is not seeking glory for himself, but he is glorifying the Father and the Son. When we think about God as a God who glorifies himself, within a Trinitarian context, we can see that there is a mutual glorification going on, and God is not selfish. Now again, much of the biblical data we're looking at is really about God's revelation in history, God's relationship to time and space as he relates to the world that he has made. And yet, how God reveals himself in history does indicate to us, it reflects something of what he is like, the kind of God we worship. And of course, when we talk about the Father glorifying the Son and the Son glorifying the Father, the works of God are undivided. It's trinity in unity. But as we look at the pages of Scripture, we see a pattern, not just in John's Gospel, but the Spirit says, I came to glorify the Son. Well, why did the Son come? I came to glorify the Father. And then the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Uh, this is my beloved Son Listen to him. To bring it all together, as Robert Lethem puts it, this is what God is like. When he seeks his glory, he is not pursuing self-interest like a celestial bully. It is not that he is more powerful than we are, and so his pursuit of his own glory wins out, come what may. He is an undivided union of three persons, a union of love each seeking the interests of the others. Thus the Father allows the Son to bring in the kingdom. The Son leads us to the Father, and the Spirit does not speak of himself, but testifies of the Son. Lethem says, this was originally pointed out by Gregory of Nyssa, when he wrote that in their mutual indwelling, the three seek the glory of the others. And that brings us back to Gregory's beautiful turn of phrase, the revolving circle of the glory. I tell you, there is not one residue of selfishness in our triune God. That God is jealous for his own glory. Yes, because the Father is jealous for the glory of his Son. And the Son is jealous for the glory of his Father. And the Spirit is jealous for the glory of the Father and the Son. And when we look at redemptive history, we see the spotlight hit the Father, and he redirects it to the Son. And the spotlight hits the Son, and he, he redirects it to the Father. And the spotlight hits the Spirit, and he redirects it to the Father and the Son. That wheels within wheels, a circle of glory. If you have any lingering doubts about this pattern of glory, consider how the white light of God's glory is refracted through the prism of the cross. Think about how this glory is mediated through our incarnate Savior, the Lord Jesus. 
That in the incarnation, the Father sent the Son and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That we beheld the glory of the invisible God in the visible face of Jesus. And at the cross, as Michael Reeves put it, when I saw the cross, I saw the Trinity. That in the cross, Jesus glorified his Father by the Spirit. He offered himself to the Father through the eternal Spirit on that tree. That in his incarnation, Jesus glorified his Father, as is pointed out in Philippians chapter 2, that great text, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And this death by which he glorified the Father was also, in some manner, his own glorification because in John 12 we learn this, Jesus says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. And this foretaste of glory on the tree ultimately leads us to the resurrection where the Father glorified the Son by raising him up by the power of the Holy Spirit, as Philippians puts it. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, on those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This God which we worship is a God of glory, not a selfish God. For God the Father gives glory to the Son, and the Son gives glory to the Father, and the Spirit gives glory to the Father and the Son. But you might wonder, does this display of glory end there, among the persons of the Godhead? Or does it even end, as we've seen in God's works in history, as we see the Lord Jesus becoming flesh. What about us? Does God withhold his glory from us? That leads us to our final movement. We've seen the distortion of glory, the pattern of glory. We've seen that pattern then refracted through the prism of the cross in the person of Jesus. But finally, we look at the reflection of glory. The reflection of glory. Look at John 17 and go to the very end of that prayer in verse 20. As Dr. Masters pointed out, Jesus prays to his Father, he prays for his disciples, and he ends by praying for those who will believe through the ministry of the apostles. He prays for you. He prays for me. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, 
that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus, as a great high priest, as the mediator, as the Messiah, as the head of the covenant of grace, comes, as it were, with the names of Israel on his heart. He comes to offer up incense of prayers to his Father. And consider the content of his intercession. Well, first, he prays for church unity as a reflection or analogy of the Trinity. In verse 21, that they all may be one. How? In what way? As you, Father, are in me, and I in you. Or verse 22, that they may be one, just as we are one. Uh, Dr. McGraw, in a book that he has on uh, the practicality of the Trinity, says this, the triune nature of God sets the pattern for unity and diversity in the church. Let us count it a great honor to imitate the Trinity in our unity and diversity. Look at second. Jesus links the petition for unity with the gift of glory. Look at verse 22 again. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. And notice that pattern that God gives glory to Christ and Christ as the God-man does not hoard or squander that gift, but then bestows glory on his people. Again, why? That they may be one just as we are one. Third, he links church unity with the demonstration of love. Look at verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. The glorious unity of the church demonstrates the love of the Father for the church, and that love in turn is patterned on his love for the Son. You have loved them as you have loved me. Fourth and finally, he links future glory with eternal glory. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have gave, whom you have gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. That Jesus' desire for his disciples to see the same glory he's had with the Father before the world was. We could say that the circle of glory comes full circle. Now, what does all of this mean for you and for me? What does it mean? Well, Gregory says this, You see the revolving circle of the glory moving from like to like. And he, he says this, In like manner, again, faith completes the circle and glorifies the Son by means of the Spirit and glorifies the Father by means of the Son. 
And in some mysterious way, Jesus draws us into the circle and says that in a very real sense, his people reflect the glory of the triune God. That God does not hoard his glory. But as Jesus says in verse 22, the glory which you gave me, I have given them. Thomas Howard says this, the more glorious the king, the more glorious are the titles and honors he bestows. All glory to him and in him glory and honor to these others. Now Jesus, Jesus' petition, or rather Jesus' prayer, which says the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that should challenge us. I've already read this, but God says very clearly, I do not give my glory to another. And yet Jesus says, the glory that you've given to me, I've given to them. How in the world can we reflect the glory of the triune God in this manner? Well, Michael Reeves, in his excellent book on the Trinity, points out something of the original context of Isaiah 42 where God makes that statement, that that is a servant song about Jesus. And when God says that I will not give my glory to another, that does not mean that he does not lavish glory upon his son. No. The father who said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is my son. I raise him up by the power of the spirit and declare him to be mine. That this father who has given his son the spirit, who has given his son glory, lavishes all glory upon his son. But here's the glorious thing. At the day of Pentecost... The Father, through the Son, sent the Spirit. He poured out the Spirit of glory upon His church. That Christ, the husband, poured out the gift of the glorious Spirit upon His bride. In some manner, we could say this, the Father lavished His glory upon the Son and then sent His Son into the world. And the Father, through the Son, poured out the Spirit of glory upon His people. Christ, in you, the hope of glory, that Spirit-wrought faith union with Jesus enables us, remaining creatures, to experience and to reflect the glory of God. I said earlier that glory means weight or light. But if you read the book of Ezekiel, you also see that glory refers to a person. That when God gives himself, he's giving glory. And when God sends his son, he sends the Lord of glory. That Jesus is the glory The Son is the radiance of the Father's glory. And in union with Jesus, we reflect that glory. Let me be clear. The Lord is God and we are not. The creator-creature distinction remains intact forever. And yet, as image bearers, we reflect the glory of our maker. 
As adopted children, we mimic the ways of our Father. In fact, the scripture is full of such invitations and demands. Be holy, for I am holy. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be imitators of God as dear children. Thomas Manson, the Puritan, in his sermon on John 17, went so far as to say this, let us study to imitate the Trinity. Now, as Fred Sanders is quick to point out, we don't necessarily imitate the Trinity as the Trinity, but there are places in Scripture where we are called in certain ways to imitate persons of the Godhead, to imitate the Father who forgives, to imitate the Son in His love, And this is really the key. There's the pattern of God's glory, the circle of God's glory. We see the Father glorifying the Son, the Son glorifying the Father, the Spirit glorifying the Father and the Son in the pages of redemptive history. We see that light of glory pass through the prism of the cross of Jesus, and it's in imitating Jesus, the mediator, the one mediator between God and man that we are able to reflect his glory. Robert Lethem says this, we are to follow suits, for this is what God is like. Since he is an undivided union of three persons, a union of love, each seeking the interests of the others, we can follow him on a creaturely level. And I would simply add, through the mediator, Jesus Christ, imitating this son. As one author puts it, humans are made to be traffickers in glory. We bring glory. We give glory. We reflect glory. We reflect the glory of the triune God. Let's take a moment and have a glory gut check. What is your glory? What is your joy and crown, your weight and light? I'm not necessarily asking what are you willing to die for in some sort of hypothetical scenario. I want to ask a more mundane question. What do you live for on Monday morning? For power, status, fitness, looks, Money, friends, fashion, the iPhone 12, worldly resources, and worldly recognition. You might say, well, how can I tell what I live for? Well, how do you spend your time, money, and energy? To borrow a classic budgeting question, uh, what do you want your resources to do for you? What are you willing to sacrifice? Because what you're willing to sacrifice is an indicator of where your glory is. You sacrifice the Lord's day for sports. And sports are your glory. If you come to the Lord's day having given yourself to everything and everyone else, and you just give God the fragments of the energy money, and time you have left, then that is your glory. If you sacrifice the opportunity to have children, 
where you sacrificed your care of your children for a double-income lifestyle, then lifestyle is your glory. If you sacrifice your family on the altar of ministry, then ministry is your glory. How do you pursue glory? Do you grab for glory? Do you post selfies of yourself because you feel insecure? Are you a 40-year-old mother who dresses like your teenage daughter? Do you window shop on Facebook? Do you try, consciously or unconsciously, to make people envy your life on Instagram? Do you lie and believe lies on social media? Do you constantly, habitually compare yourself to other people? Do you size up your neighbor's house, your neighbor's spouse, your neighbor's clothes, your neighbor's children, your neighbor's vacations, your neighbor's lifestyle, your neighbor's life? And perhaps resent that neighbor because you envy that neighbor because you feel entitled to some granule of their glory. Do you feel sorry for yourself and in self-pity hate the world? Scary thing is sometimes we don't know that this is what's happening. Because the goal seems so pious. This can happen in ministry. Where you are tempted to grasp and grab for a pastoral call, an internship, a position of influence in the church. And I'm not talking about godly ambition and assertion. I've got four boys. I want them to be assertive. I want them to take initiative. But I'm talking about glory grabbing where you try to manufacture something that isn't even there. Where in the name of ministry, you manipulate people and circumstances to get what you want because your self-worth perhaps is tied up in having recognized ministerial status in a NAPARC denomination. That's the measure of your glory, and you'll do whatever it takes to get it because you feel entitled to it. And once you have that glory, you, you hold on to it at all costs. You clench your fists because it doesn't matter that your household is falling apart. And it doesn't matter that your children have rejected the faith. And it doesn't matter that your wife's on the cusp of leaving you. It doesn't matter that your elders are deeply concerned about you because you feel entitled to glory. And in the name of ministry to Jesus, you hold it, you grab it, and you hoard it. And in this deranged mindset, other people become liabilities. When you see somebody with superior gifts and graces in your church, in your presbytery, in your life, 
That person's not an ally. That's not somebody to collaborate with. That person is a threat to your glory. And maybe you resent them because you envy them. And maybe deep down, you really want to make them pay. People of God, there is such a better way. Behold, the glory of God displayed in history, refracted through the prism of the cross, reflected in the mirror of your life. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. This is the mind of Christ. This is the reflection of God's glory. And I know we've covered a lot of ground, but to sort of distill it, God is love. And love seeks the glory of another. And those who seek the glory of another will in turn be glorified. That the heart of the Christian life is a mutual giving and receiving of glory. A reflection of glory. And if we got hold of this vision, not just intellectually, but experientially, it would change everything. It would color every relationship. Every deed. That as creatures, what this looks like is actually quite simple. Again, maintaining the creator-creature distinction. But for us, what this looks like is love God with all that you got. Out of the deep center of who you are, love your neighbor as yourself. How do I glorify God? Well, by loving him and doing what he commands. As Michael Morales put it, by simple obedience to his words. Rachel Jankovic, in her book, You Who, says, planting flags of everyday faithfulness. That's how you reflect the glory of God as an image bearer and as a sinner saved by grace. Now, perhaps you worry, what will happen if I actually live this way? I mean, if if you give away the glory. Well, people of God, your pursuit of glory is not a zero-sum game. God's glory is not a finite resource to grab and hoard. Such glory is not taken and held. It's only given and received. Truly, it is more blessed to give than to receive because the more you give, the more your capacity to receive. And the more you receive, the more your capacity to give. God's glory doesn't run out or run dry. No, the more you share, the more it grows. There is nothing. There is nothing that you pour out that God will not fill back up again till your cup is overflowing. As one author puts it, give away the glory, but keep the joy. Give away the glory, but keep the purpose and the pleasure. We are made to traffic in glory that we might live in joy. That for you, as it was for Jesus, the way of the cross 
leads home from cross to crown, from sacrifice to glory. So don't hide your glory under the mattress. Don't bury it in the backyard. No, get some skin in the glory game. Invest it in the kingdom. Cast your bread upon the waters, and after many days, you will find it. As Solomon says, there is one who scatters, yet increases more. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. I tell you, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. You have a long-term investment indexed to the kingdom of God and its sure ascendancy, and it grows like a mustard seed from day to day. So take your glory and throw it in the ground that it might rise some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. Like Job, when you lose everything, you get it back a double portion. Like Elisha, you get a double portion of Elijah's spirits. Because with glory, we're not doing addition, we're doing multiplication. And five loaves can feed 5,000. Worldly glory only leaves you wanting more, but God's glory is always enough. It's more than enough. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. Maybe you hear that. Because of where you are in life, in the decisions you've made, your thought is, what happens if I've blown it? What if I've given my strength to women and sacrificed my children on the altar to Molech and I've sold my birthright for pottage and I've hewn from myself broken cisterns that can hold no water? What if I've got Ichabod on the back of my license plate because the glory is gone? Well, dear sinner, if you've wasted your inheritance in a far country, the best day to begin investing in the kingdom of God is today. So repent of your glory grabbing and embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to you in the gospel. Lay hold of Jesus, the Lord of glory, who died for sinners like you and like me. God can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Run to Jesus, and he will not turn you away. I said earlier that each of us has what Aaron Ventura calls glory hunger. At the end of the day, the key question that he asks is this, where are we satisfying our thirst for glory? There's only two kinds of glory. There's earthly glory and there's heavenly glory. There's the glory that comes from men and there's the glory that comes from God. There's those terrifying words that are spoken in John 12 concerning the rulers of Israel. They loved the praise, the glory of men more than the praise and glory of God. When you look at your neighbor who's living for himself and living for earthly glory, assuredly I say to you, they have their reward. It's real, it's tangible, it's touchable, it's tasteable. I've felt the pull. 
I've tasted the sweet sip and the bitter dregs, and it's empty, it's worthless, but there is an earthly reward. But your father sees in secret. Your father sees the spilled Cheerios from your children's breakfast on the floor. He sees the sleepless nights with a teething baby. He sees you reading books to your children after a hard day at work. He sees you engaging with your wife and turning the television set off. He sees the bread in the oven, and he sees the bowl of soup on the porch. He sees the pay cut. He sees the money that you wanted to put into a product that you used to buy homeschool curriculum. He sees you worn out with groaning. He sees your couch drenched with tears. He sees you pleading on the living room floor in prayer for a wayward son or daughter. He sees people mocking you. He sees people slander you. He sees people treat you like trash. He sees you remain calm when every fiber in your body wants to knock someone's teeth out. He sees you delighting in the gifts and graces of someone who has outstripped you in glory. He sees you delighting in your children who have far outstripped you in glory, and you're not threatened by it, but rejoice in it. He sees you faithfully plodding in the same direction. And I tell you that your father who sees in secret will reward you openly with the promise of glory. In the meantime, in the meantime, we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. That every Lord's Day, in public worship, we reflect, as John Piper puts it, back to God, the radiance of his worth. That in everything you do, whether you eat or you drink, or you teach your children, or you pick up the trash, you do all to the glory of God. You feel his pleasure, that your eyes are bright with the honey that only God can give. You arise and you shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. And we do that. We grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We reflect back to God, his glory. We do that until that day when the light overcomes the darkness in judgment. When the glory of kings passes into the kingdom, when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord fills the earth as the waters cover the sea, when the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it because the glory of God illuminates it, the Lamb is the glory. And on that day, when you are raised up in glory, openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment, on that day, you will hear personal words of commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And in that moment, 
But God, whom you've sought by grace to glorify Him your entire life, will turn around and glorify you. And you'll reflect His glory back to Him. And He'll shine His light of glory upon you. Again and again, heavier and brighter. Further up and further in reflection and magnification and you begin to realize on that day that you are simply as a creature reflecting in some dim way the pattern of God's glory that never began. That you realize in that day afresh as you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and you behold him and see him as he is. And when God gives you glory, he gives you himself. He gives you his son who is the Lord of glory. And you on that day will be able to say and confess in a finer tone what the psalmist said when he said, God, you are a shield for me, my glory. And the lifter up of my head, O people of God, lift up your heads, lift up your hearts, look unto Jesus. When you do by faith, you will see what Gregory of Nyssa believed. You'll see what John saw. You'll see what Jesus sees. The revolving circle of the glory from like to like. Faith completes the circle. Let us pray. Glory be to you, our Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. For of you and through you and to you are all things, to whom be glory forever, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and Confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu. donate For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.